Last week I gave you some books to read if you wanted to follow up on some more of the information. Duh, this week I want to do the same. Uh, in talking about the existence of God, there are, there are some books that are really, really good. Uh, one of them is uh, by Lee Strobel. Actually, two of them are by Lee Strobel. The Case for Faith and The Case for Christ. This was the first one that he wrote in this series. Lee Strobel used to be a reporter for the Chicago Tribune and was an agnostic, set about to really figure it out, write a book that disproved the resurrection of Jesus Christ, came to the conviction that Jesus Christ really was who he said he was and was really the living, resurrected Lord. And these books are the result of his study through that particular adventure in his own life. It's good stuff. Also like this uh, little book, Can a Smart Person Believe in God? Um, Michael uh, Gillen or, or uh, is a great writer when it comes to that little book on that subject. There are a couple other books, uh, A Ready Defense, Josh McDowell, a great resource. This is a better resource than just one that you sit down and read, but it gives you places to turn if you're looking for evidence that uh, supports what you're studying. Then there's a couple books I don't have up here with me, uh, but I've got. Uh, one of them is, of course, C.S. Lewis's classic work, Mere Christianity. Uh, you can't hardly improve on that one. Uh, a book, Why We Believe, Why Believe God Exists, written by Dr. Terry Meathy and Dr. Gary Habermas. Great uh, evidence uh, for, for believing in the person of God. And and then, I really like this one too, I don't have it on the screen, but this is by Dr. Norman Geisler, uh, or Geisler uh, and it's simply entitled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So it's, it's a good one you may want to pick up and, and read as well. There are other books that we'll talk about later, but, uh, and again, the reason I'm giving you these books is because what I do in a 30-minute sermon is just so, so small and so insignificant with regard to the subject matter. All I can do is I hope to just kind of whet your appetite to, to dig deeper. And it's important to dig deeper. Trust me, I can't give you enough. You need to do your study on your own. And you need to know why you believe and be able to share that with others who are wondering why you believe what you do. So if we concede that we are the product of creation and that the creator is God himself, then the next question that comes to mind has to do with the Bible and its veracity. Is it really the word of God or just a compilation of human writings about human perceptions of God? Can it be trusted as true? Aren't there contradictions in the scripture? How can we be certain that the message is something on which we can stake our eternal lives? Why should I... Why? even pretend to believe in the Word of God? All good questions. Questions I don't have the time to deal with in depth, but I will give you a sneak peek this morning. When Charles Dickens wrote his classic, A Christmas Carol, the very first edition sold for five shillings, or when you compensate for inflation and the passing years, that would be about the equivalent of us spending $30 today in our own money to buy that first book. Last fall, Sotheby's auctioned off a first edition copy of A Christmas Carol, and it brought just over $5,800. And they also auctioned off, at that same time, a first edition copy signed by Charles Dickens, and that brought over $281,000. Wow! The difference that an autograph can make. In a very real sense, the Bible claims to be God's autograph to us, thus making it incredibly valuable. It's more than just words on a page. 
It claims to be inspired. That means God breathed. That what we read is the very breath of God on the page. In the Old Testament, the word oracle is used a lot. The living oracle. The word oracle means that it is the, literally the very voice of God that is transferred to print. And after all, the whole concept of word is fundamental to our faith. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and made His dwelling among us. Here are some other biblical claims to its character. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, living and active. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word, the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. It is undeniable these handful of verses, along with many others, that the Scriptures claim to be the unique revelation of God, the very voice of God, the very breath of God for our admonition. Now, there are a lot of folks today who, who seriously doubt the veracity of these scriptural claims. There, there are many who just want to group the New Testament and the story of Jesus into the other mythical writings of mystic God religions down through human history. As a matter of fact, there are many who believe that Christianity plagiarized from all of the earlier God mystic religions, and that's how they developed this story. As a matter of fact, on YouTube, there is a video that's been viewed literally by millions, Zeitgeist, uh, the Greatest Story Ever Told. Sometimes you can find it by going to The Greatest Story Ever Sold. And it seeks to undermine the whole uniqueness of Scripture. Now, it, it, is, it is full with all kinds of things that kind of make you think, wow, is that true? And it presents it in such a way that makes you really question what you believe about God's Word. You know, sometimes people want to believe something so strongly that they just forego the evidence. They accept all the hype without any kind of background. I mean, they want to believe it so badly that they're just taken in at face value. A fellow was talking to his neighbor across the fence, and he said, I just bought a new hearing aid, and it's perfect. It's fabulous. It's state-of-the-art. It's guaranteed for me to hear every word correctly and to pick up the tiniest of sounds. It's promised that I won't ever drop another word ever. Cost me $25,000, but I'm here to tell you it's worth every penny. And the neighbor said, really? What kind is it? To which the guy said, that's about 1230. Sometimes we want something so badly that we believe every guarantee or every promise that we take in at face value what is said about something. Now let me tell you, if you take this at face value, you're buying into a lot of lies. Let me give you just one example. Remember when it was talking about Horus and it said underneath Horus uh, 3000 BC, Egypt. And then it talked about him being crucified, buried, and rising the third day. We know from history that crucifixion wasn't even remotely in the minds of, of humanity at that point in time. The, the, 
the Persians were the very first to start using crucifixion. That's who the Romans got it from. They started using that somewhere about 500 B.C. And then the Romans picked up from that and improved on it. Prior to the Persians, the Neo-Assyrians did something which was called impaling, which is simply they sharpened a stick and impaled people on it as a means of death, a horrible means of death. But that was what they say was the forerunner of crucifixion. The Neo-Assyrians were, were a nation from 900 to 300 B.C. So for 2,000 years before that, there was nothing remotely like crucifixion. It's just a flat-out lie. The, the really interesting thing about all of this is that when you read, listen through that video, they offer absolutely no evidence for the claims. They just make the claims. But what we know is that we have absolutely no textual information, nothing, nothing written down about any of these beliefs with regard to any of these God-mystic religions until somewhere between the 2nd and 4th century A.D. Two to four hundred years after Jesus Christ is when all of this starts cropping up in these other religions. There is nothing about the claims that are remotely true. Unlike the video, Mithras was never called son of God or light of the world. As a matter of fact, there is no record of any worship of Mithra in the Roman Empire until well after 100 A.D. Out of 1,200 world scholars on this subject matter, you can count on one hand those who still believe that somehow the mystic religions inspired Christianity. Out of 1,200 only those who just forcibly don't want to believe. In actuality, it is far more likely that here's the way the story goes. When the gospel of Jesus Christ began to be proclaimed in Judea and then into the rest of the Roman Empire, that the pagan religions began to lose people. They began to lose followers and disciples who converted to Christianity. And so the pagan religions said, we got to come up with a God who's like Jesus Christ. And that's when they begin to take on all of these uniquenesses that we find only in Christ. You say, what about archaeology? There is no archaeological evidence. There is no relief painting. There is no information on a vase or a jar that's painted that gives any credence to the stories that you find in the video. The only evidence comes between the 2nd and the 4th century A.D. Now tell me who borrowed from whom. You see, the more I study the Bible and history, the more convinced I am of its uniqueness above all books. Publishing a book today requires not only the work of the author, but of a, the, the editorial skills of an editorial team and the scrutiny of the publisher. Sometimes an author has to push back to get his idea in print or her idea on the page. And that's just one book, one writer, one publisher. It's a lot of work. Stop and think about 66 books and all the different writers, and there was no human plan. As a matter of fact, when they wrote, they weren't thinking of it being organized into a volume. I can't describe it better than how Dr. James Kennedy describes it. Keep in mind that no human publisher commissioned the writing of such a book, speaking of the Bible. No editor set forth a plan. No editorial committee oversaw its development. No one distributed an outline to different authors. 
Despite these facts, there is every sort of literature in the Bible, including prose and poetry, history and law, biography and travel, genealogies, theologies, and philosophies. And somehow, all these elements combine to provide an incredible unity from Genesis to Revelation. Suppose, suppose that 40 different sculptors, without any knowledge of what others were doing, each decided to create a single piece of sculpture. And when the pieces were brought together, they formed an exquisite statue of Christ. That outcome is incomprehensible. And yet the Bible is a greater accomplishment by far. It's true. The Bible's uniqueness in history is undeniable. Recorded by over 40 different writers from 40 different generations, spanning 1,500 years in the writing, it was written on three different continents in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and a smattering of Aramaic. It was written in times of war and peace, prosperity and imprisonment, joy and sorrow. It was written by an adopted prince of Pharaoh who became a shepherd, and it was written by a shepherd son of Jesse who became a prince and then king. Writers include a fisherman, herdsman, military general, cupbearer to a king, prime minister, doctor, tax collector, poet, and rabbi. It was written by people of royal birth and common birth, formally educated and experience educated. And yet when you read the story, there is this consistent thread that runs from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. The consistency is incredible. Ask 10 people who were eyewitnesses to an automobile accident a week later what they saw and see how consistent their stories are after just seven days. You see, the hope of Christ is promised in Genesis. The return of Christ is promised in Revelation. Genesis begins in a garden paradise with the tree of life and the convergence of four rivers. Revelation ends in a paradise garden with the tree of life and one river flowing from the throne of God. In the beginning, humanity is driven out of the garden paradise because of sin and forbidden to eat from the tree of life. But in the end, we are invited to the paradise garden because of the grace of God and compelled to eat of the tree of life. It is an incredible adventure, but at the very heart and soul of it all is Jesus Christ. He is the glue that holds it all together. Now remember, it's not arranged chronologically, it's arranged categorically, but he still is the thread that runs through it all. You see, the books of law in the Old Testament provide the foundation for Christ. The books of history show the preparation for Christ. The books of poetry express an ambition to know Christ. The prophets proclaim an expectation of Christ. The gospels record the historical manifestation of Christ. Acts relates the circulation of the message of Christ. The New Testament letters give us an interpretation of Christ. And Revelation describes the consummation of all things in Christ. He's the key. It's his salvation that we're to relate and to share with this world. You want to summarize the whole thing in one statement? It's like this. In the Old Testament, someone is coming. In the gospel, someone is come. In the rest of the New Testament, someone is coming again. And that someone is Jesus. A preacher, a friend of mine, Dan Lang, wrote, he said, The uniqueness of Christianity is rooted in Jesus himself. 
When all other religious leaders say, I'll show you how to find truth, Jesus says, I am truth. They say, I'll show you the way to be enlightened, and Jesus said, I am the light of the world. They say, I'll show you the doors that lead to God, and Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way. Historians continue to learn more and more about this whole concept of translation and textual work and and criticism and all the things that are going on. And we actually have better tools of translation than ever before. So when you read an English translation of the Bible, they have gone back to the original language text and translated that into our own English vernacular. Now some of you are thinking, you mean we actually have the ancient letters that Paul wrote when he was in prison? No, we don't. That would be grand if we do, but we don't have the actual letters that Paul wrote. We have copies of what Paul wrote. And I didn't have a Xerox copy machine in the prison there in Rome, but there were people who painstakingly hand-copied those to distribute and to circulate among the churches. And it is incredibly reliable. As a matter of fact, the earliest copy that we have goes back to about 125 A.D., which is separated from the original writing by only about 50 years. That's really good. You say, well, how many copies do we have? Well, there are more than 5,500 Greek copies, more than 10,000 Latin copies, and over 9,000 other early versions in other languages to give scholars over 24 thousand copies of the whole are parts of the New Testament. 24,000 copies. There is nothing in history that even begins to compare with that. Do you know what the second most documented ancient writing is? Piece of literature? Anybody? It's Homer's Iliad. We have 643 copies. And the oldest copy is separated by 500 years from the original writing of Homer himself. The writings of Caesar, we have 10 copies. The writings of Plato, seven copies. The writings of Aristotle, 49 copies of any one of his works. The New Testament, 24,000 copies. It's incredible, the uniqueness of this work. Are there any discrepancies? Yeah, there are a few. Between all of the evidence, some 40 lines of the New Testament are in question. Many of them involve a misspelled word or a different number, which would be easy to do uh, in handwriting. As in the case of the Iliad, there are 764 lines of text in question. (laughs) Nearly 800 lines compared to 40 lines. 40 lines in the whole New Testament. And the most obvious one comes with the question with regard to the woman who is caught in the act of adultery and who is brought to Jesus, and Jesus stirs his finger in the sand and then says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. In some ancient manuscripts and copies, that story isn't present. In others, it is. Whether it was in the original, I cannot tell you, but that story does not change the view of the character of Christ, whether it's in or it's not in. There's nothing unique in that story that suddenly changes how we understand things. And here's the good news. In no promise of God, in no issue of doctrine, is there any discrepancy among the 24,000 copies. A fairly recent insight of scholarship cites that about the same time of history when Jesus was ministering, shorthand was becoming popular. Given the price and scarcity of parchment and papyrus, making the most of writing space is and was critical. 
Now, one of Jesus' disciples had a career that would have qualified him to write shorthand that may have meant he probably knew shorthand. You know which one that was? It's Matthew, the tax collector who would have written everything down and been required to. Is it unreasonable to think that Matthew may have been recording when Jesus was speaking or teaching? Let me ask you something. How many of you took notes in, in school? Let me see your hands. Seriously? All of you took notes in school? Why would you do that? Well, because you want to remember what the teacher's teaching. You want to remember so that you can be prepared for the test. There are some of you who even, even take notes when we preach. <laughs> I can't, can't believe that you would do that, but you do. Because you want to remember something. It, it's not inconceivable to think that Matthew would have recorded that. You see, the reliability of the Scriptures is the fact that it's based on eyewitnesses who knew him, who heard him, who may have even written down what they saw and heard at the time. And with regard to the enormous volume of Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Jesus, we know from the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Old Testament was intact 150 years before Jesus was born. And if that's not good enough, there is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It was completed in 132 B.C. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's really hard to translate something that isn't there. So if you have a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it means the Old Testament Hebrew text were there so they could translate it. All of that to say, we know that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament were intact at least 150 years before Jesus was born and the fact that he fulfilled all of those with the exception of the ones that pertain to his return, which is yet to be, is an astronomical odds. I'm telling you, folks, this is no ordinary book. We desperately need its message. An airplane was carrying four people and three parachutes. There was a pilot, a genius, a minister, and a Boy Scout. When the engine caught fire and the airplane began to uh, go down, the pilot ran out of the cockpit, grabbed one of the parachutes, and went out the side door. The genius stood up quickly and said, I am the world's smartest man. The world needs me. And he grabbed a parachute and went out the side door. That left the minister and the Boy Scout. The minister said to the Boy Scout, he said, Son, I've lived a long time in this world. And he said, You're still young. You take that parachute and go, and I'll stay with the plane and go down with it. The scout answered, Hey, don't sweat it, preacher. The smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack. <laughs> we live in a world that's going down in flames, and people are putting their hope in the wrong parachutes. They're grabbing empty backpacks that look good, but there's nothing there to save you in the fall. I've not had the time today to explore all of the evidence for the Bible, but you need to do that. You really need to do that. I will, however, offer one more compelling piece of evidence. This is subjective, but it's still compelling. After 2,000 years, God's Word is still changing lives. I've lived long enough and I've preached long enough to see countless lives transformed, broken lives, hurting lives, disbelieving lives, changed and transformed by the power of God's Word. I think if that's all I knew, it would be more than enough to convince me this is no ordinary book. This is the breath of God. This is the voice of God in print. The living word.
I must tell you, I wouldn't mind having a first edition signed copy of A Christmas Carol. Uh, how about you? If I had one, I'd sell it, auction it off, and then retire a little sooner than maybe what I'd planned early in life. And I suppose if Charles Dickens were here today, he might be surprised at the value of such a book. But I think he would be quick to remind you that's not the most valuable book because he actually said so in his own life. Charles Dickens said, the New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be known in this world. I agree. When you see a beautiful painting, you want to know more about the artist. When you hear a beautiful song, you want to know more about the composer. When you read a wonderful, life-changing book, you want to know more about the author. As a kid, I got a telescope one year for Christmas. It wasn't a hugely powerful telescope, but it was a great telescope for taking out and putting on the driveway at night. And I was fascinated as I looked up into the sky, studied the moon, the stars, the constellations. As with many things, the fascination sort of wore off, as oftentimes does. And it sat in the corner of the basement for several years. Even after I left home, it was still in that corner in the basement. Looked nice there. It looked rather inviting in that corner, but it didn't help give anybody a better understanding of our solar system by just sitting in that corner in the basement. You see, a telescope is for looking through, not looking at. The Bible is much like a telescope. You know, looking through a telescope, we can see things clearly, though they are at a distance. Looking through a telescope, we can see worlds that are far beyond us. Looking through a telescope, we are brought closer to the things that are much bigger than we are. And when you look through the Bible, when you read the Bible, you see life more clearly in this world. You'll catch a glimpse of that heavenly world that is far beyond. And most importantly, it will bring you closer to the one who is much bigger than you are. Let's not put God's Word in a corner. Let's not just look at it. Let's look into it so that we can know the author and fall in love with him all over again. Jesus is the glue. He's the thread. He's the purpose. He's the power. Do you know him as your Savior? He's the living Word. He wants you. You need him. While we stand and sing, you come.